Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Good morning. Today's passage comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, Pastor Mike. would like to start with just asking you to pray for me. Can we do that while I kind of get situated here? Would you, uh, and I'll close this, but if you could just for a few seconds pray pray for me. Father, it is my best prayer that I would faithfully retell a story that is or at least should be foundational for me, for us, for us as the people of God. Give us the eyes to see it, the ears to hear it, and the courage to respond. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So the Uncomfortable Kingdom is the series that we're in right now, just for a few more weeks before we hit Advent. But it will be uncomfortable today, dependent on what your um, particular understanding of God is. What is the picture of God with which you navigate your life? And, and like I said, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm happy, can I announce, Coach, that, uh, that I'm, I'm happy to be the chaplain for the MACU basketball team at Coach Gamblin. Amen. Love that back there. And um, yes, they're going to be great. I've never seen a practice run as well. So I'm thinking about playing myself, actually. The practice went so well, thinking about stepping out. Um, But I was able to say to them, show me your picture of God and I will show you the shape of your faith. Think about that for a second, okay? Show me your operating picture of God, your understanding of God. And then I will show you the shape of your faith. If you are visiting with us today, first of all, welcome. It's always this cold in the sanctuary. No, that's not true. It's not always this cold in the sanctuary. We are working on that even as we speak. But if you're visiting today, you you should be aware that we will at the end of this service today be taking communion. As a matter of fact, we take communion each and every week around here, I, I am always looking for a way 
for the sermon to land somewhere around or on the communion table. It's because it's incumbent upon me as your pastor, but also as a believer, to, on a regular basis, remind me of the proper view and picture understanding of God. Because, you all, there are different understandings of God that are functioning out there that result in very different expressions of faith, right? And all God's people said, and sometimes what we have to do is confess the difference between the image of God that functions in our minds and hearts and the story that we tell here each week. Do you need to confess the difference between the image of God that functions in your mind and heart or the one that you want to function in your mind and heart and the picture of God that we see and rehearse each week around this table? Can I say something to you that should not be controversial but has been at times even in this building? Y'all, Jesus is God. I mean, it should not be controversial, and yet there are some people who wish for a God that is something other than the kind Jesus we see in the Gospels. But let me say it again, and I want you to, to, to consider whether or not this is offensive to you, because this is going to be uncomfortable for you today. If at any level, you don't have to stand up and identify yourself, and don't point, please, right? But y'all, Jesus is God. This entire year, and in the Christian calendar, it's called, really, uh, unimaginatively, it's called year A. <laughs> this entire year, we have pursued Jesus. For 50-some-odd weeks by the end of this year, we will have pursued Jesus, preaching from the Gospels week to week to week. And every time I've gotten up in front of you, starting with last year's Advent season, we have explored the Gospel texts, the red-letter texts, the ones about Jesus. And, and here's why you're going to hear this a lot today. Because, you guys, Jesus is God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Invisible made visible in Jesus. Jesus is the word who was with God, who was God. Jesus, finish it with me. Jesus is What is God like? Well, God's like Jesus. What, what does God do? Well, God does what Jesus does in the Gospels. Because Jesus is God, y'all. What moves the heart of God? Let's take a look and see what moves Christ's heart. I don't know for sure what picture of God operates in your mind, in your heart, in your imagination, but if it isn't Jesus, you need to confess the difference and close the gap. Does your picture of God really look like Zeus? I mean, think about it. Does your picture of God have Jesus with a giant white beard somewhere in the cosmos, somewhere? And by the way, he's white. That's not God. 
Now that God may display attributes that you really want to see in your God, but friends, that is not God. You know how I know? Because Jesus is God. For literally thousands of years, the people of God have resisted <laughs> this truth that Jesus is God. Thousands of years. In fact, this is the point of the entire chapter here, Matthew chapter 22, time and again, the Pharisees, and then it was the Sadducees, and then it was the Herodians, and others have challenged Jesus, trying to trap him and ultimately, ultimately eliminate him. And it's because they were offended by this notion that this Jesus purportedly was God, the Messiah. But the Messiah that the Pharisees wanted, the, the, the Messiah that the Pharisees at some level seemed to have needed, looked strangely like King David, the greatest king in Israel's history, the defender of Judah, the recipient of the promises of God and the very symbol, the very symbol of God's promises to God and all believers. In their minds, the Messiah, descendant of, Je of David, which by the way is stated in Matthew chapter one, it's in that whole genealogical passage there. Surely this Messiah will look like David and do David-shaped sorts of things because David is the respected ancestor right? Surely this Jesus is a pretender. Surely this Jesus is a fraud because this Jesus looks nothing like David. So the Pharisees had questions. How can that hippie <laughs> be God? They had questions and doubts. They had spent the earlier parts of this chapter interrogating Jesus about whether or not to pay taxes, about what happens in the resurrection. But Jesus, knowing their doubts, finally turns the tables, and now he's going to interrogate them, verse 41. I'm going to go to 41 at the end of this text before circling back to what Mike read earlier. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus takes his turn and interrogates them. That's actually the word right there. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, ah, oh, we know this one. The Messiah is, because we've read all the scriptures, the Messiah is the son of David, and you know what? They are right. That has been the promise of God for generations and generations. The Messiah would be the son of David. And when they said that, the Pharisees had in mind a particular shape of the Messiah. They wanted someone who would be worthy of being a descendant of David. Jesus is, in fact, a descendant of David, if you believe Matthew chapter 1. They wanted someone to rule as a king. That's going to work, too. This Jesus is a king. Maybe not like they wanted, but a king nonetheless. And they wanted someone who would dominate and terrorize Israel's enemies. That one's not going to be so great. But to be fair, you want a God sometimes, too, who terrorizes your enemies. Sometimes Christian nations want gods that terrorize the Christian nation's enemies. I mean, that's in Scripture too, actually. 
I mean, Psalm 110, I'm going to read you a few verses from Psalm 110 that they're going, that Jesus is about to quote to them. Psalm 110, which is a messianic psalm, starts like this. The Lord says to my, and by the way, we think David wrote this. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Verse 6, he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. corpses. He will shatter heads over the wide earth. That's not great. But that's what a David-shaped Messiah would be like. And Jesus, having survived their traps and snares to this point, now sets a trap of his own for them, sadly, also for us. Who's the boss, is what Jesus is asking here. Is David Jesus' boss, such that David would then tell Jesus how to go about being the Messiah? Or is it possible that Jesus is God, and if Jesus is God, would Jesus then be able to say to David, you had your time, now I will have my time, says Jesus. Verse 43, he said to them, oh, okay, son of David, but then how is it that David by the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, this is not the way. This is not the way families went. This is not the way to understand heritage way back when. The son was never going to surpass the father. The father got to shape the shape of the son. Jesus is saying here, look, unless it's the Messiah, the Messiah is God, and then God kind of gets to tell David where David missed it. If Jesus is David's son, then Jesus is supposed to be subordinate to the leadership and the example of David. But then again, David refers to the Messiah as his Lord. If David is subordinate to the Messiah, then David and all of Israel are subordinate to the leadership and example of the Messiah. And that would be, as the Gospel of Matthew contends, Jesus Now the Pharisees have a problem. Now the Pharisees have a problem. Not only now with this Messiah, but now they understand that Jesus sees them to have a problem with their own expectations of that Messiah. Is Jesus talking about you too? What are your expectations where the faith is concerned? What are your expectations where your particular understanding of God is concerned? Are you like the Pharisees insisting on somebody who looks a lot like King David, the warrior king? Or are you okay if it's going to be Jesus? Because they're going to lead in two different directions. And only one of them is right. Super quiet. Before I read this N.T. Wright quote, listen to another guy that I've read this week. 
If Christ is the son of David, therefore subordinate to the glory of David, then the activity of the Christ would be to restore the throne of David. But if Christ is greater than David, to the point that David calls him my Lord, then the activity of the Christ, Messiah, Jesus, would be greater than restoring the throne of David. In other words, Jesus had dreams that were larger than nationalism. Here's what N.T. Wright says. What Jesus is trying to get at is the kind of messiahship that is represented in Psalm 110 that is not the way that Jesus will go about being the messiah. It's not nationalistic. It is not militaristic. It is not about cracking heads open. (laughs) Jesus is saying this isn't how it's going to be. If David's son is also David's master, then the warlike Davidic Messiah of popular Jewish imagination will be, after all, one who will bring the saving, healing rule of this creator God to the entire world. Do you want this kind of Messiah? Which which Messiah... And I know you guys are all nice people. I'm talking about the other believers out there who seem to want a warlike God who defeats the folks who don't look like us. Is that you? Riot goes on to say this. The enemies that this Jesus will put under his feet, as Psalm 110 insists, will not be the nationalist enemies of an ethnic people of God but it will be the ultimate enemies of the entire human race and indeed the whole world. In other words, sin and death, which sin will bring. So what will this Messiah then look like? And what will this new kingdom look like? Well, let's go back to the words that Mike read earlier. In verse 35, A lawyer asked a question of Jesus to test him. Mm. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Which which one? Because if he chooses one, then he's not choosing the others. But it looks to me like this isn't a very good lawyer because there were lots of people, even in Jesus' age, who were willing to answer with this answer that Jesus gives right here. Jesus said, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. That is the Hebrew right there for hear, O Israel. Because this is, for all intents and purposes, a a restatement of the Shema. The Shema found all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Since there have been the people of God, There's been a God who has said to the people, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. This is not new. This was not news. The lawyer probably should have anticipated that this would be the answer, but what the lawyer could not have anticipated was the next part. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, also from the Old Testament, from Leviticus chapter 19. Then Jesus says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This is the same Jesus who throughout the Sermon on the Mount, especially in chapter 5, was fond of saying something like this. You have heard that it was said, 
but I say. You have heard that it was said, but I say. This is kind of Jesus doing it again. You have heard that David said we're going to crack heads around here, but I say we're not. But do you want him to? Now again, not you. But are there Christians out there who want Jesus to fight and win with the weapons of the enemy? And are they on social media or are they on your chosen news network? Let's, let's, let's put some more cards on the table. I'm not sure I like that metaphor, but here we go. Jesus here gives us every answer that we need. This is how Jesus will go about being God. This is the message of God. These are the purposes and the mission of God. This is what it means to follow this God in Christ. These two commandments are now handed to us, the people of God, the people of the way of Christ. This is our calling and our mission. Listen, it's just this. I don't want to make it more complicated than what it is. You ready? Here's what it means to be a follower of Christ. We are the people who believe that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, and we believe that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. Full stop. If you can kind of find your entire existence there, my hunch is you'll be a pretty good Christian. As long as this is your vision of God, the one we see in the face of Jesus. And by the way, there are other options out there, and there are lots of people choosing other options, and they're calling themselves Christian, y'all. In the hierarchy of biblical voices, and there is such a thing, Jesus outranks Moses. Amen? Jesus outranks David. Amen? Jesus outranks your vision of the giant God in the sky who probably is more like Zeus and has a giant white beard and is probably white. Amen? If you are following Jesus, you're following the one that so much of Christian history has tried to reject and is trying to reject today. But for us, Jesus is the lens with which we will read Scripture. And that may not bother you, but listen to this. Jesus is also the lens with which we read the newspaper. And social media. And 24-7 news network opinutainment. Jesus is the lens, or he's not your God. Wow, what a week to be Christian on this planet, huh? <laughs> what a week. 
Because we have international stories to reckon with, don't we? What, what are we supposed to think about what's happening in, in Gaza? Don't opt out. What is the Christian response to another shooting nightmare in Maine? What about the nightmares in our own state and city, and there are some? <laughs> you know what, beyond that, I happen to know that there are families in the building who are suffering nightmares right and left. What is the Christian response? What, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to be? Because while there are no shortages of nightmares out there, there also seems to be no shortages of the variety of Christian voices who seem to be operating with wildly different views of God, and it's confusing. Friends, there is one picture of God that the people of God should grip tighter than the rest. Ready? There is but one picture of God that is a satisfactory answer to the question, who is God? There is only one answer. Is everybody ready? The answer is Jesus. And every Christian aspiration is measured by the person and posture of Jesus. Who is God, by the way? What does it mean to be a person, a people of the way of Christ? What does it mean? Well, how about if I retell you a story? If you're helping me to tell the story, would you please come? But here's how the story goes. A God that we thought at some level should have been a lion turns out to have been an always slaughtered lamb. But in being an always slaughtered lamb, there were resources for life and strength redefined, hope and victory redefined, that we never would have gotten from the lion, that you can only get from the always being slaughtered lamb. There are resources there for people who are living through the nightmares. Resources there. This is the God who suffers alongside. <laughs> this isn't the God who goes out to perpetuate and perpetrate suffering. This is the God who comes alongside and suffers along with. This is not the lion. This is the always being slaughtered lamb. That's the story I want to retell. So Father, bless these elements and may they be the way that we retell the story in faithfulness. Bless the bread and the cup. And may they be tangible reminders of this particular story in which we see what love looks like, in which we see what God looks like. Friends, this is broken body and shed blood. These are not the tangible symbols handed out that allow us to remember the lion and all of its strength and terrorizing power. Broken body and shed blood, 
more reminiscent of the always being slaughtered lamb, right? Because, by the way, the cross is not a measure of how much a powerful God can get really mad, can get really angry at your sin and all of the sins. The cross, when properly understood, don't apologize for that one, the cross, when properly understood, communicates how far love will go to make this point. All the way to broken body, he shed blood. This is the image of God. And if you find yours five feet away, friends, confess the five feet and try to close that gap. It's okay, John. Mine's only about six inches away. Well, it's six inches wrong. And confess the difference in the hope of finally remarrying who God is with who you want God to be. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand to your feet and participate in this story. You'll do so by standing, exiting your pew to the left and coming forward. All of you who want to. All are invited, but absolutely none of you are compelled. If you want to say, no, nope, I prefer Zeus. I don't want any part of this always being slaughtered lamb. Keep your seat. You're invited, but you don't have to come. But if you are gonna come, I hope that you'll come and approach somebody holding a plate of bread. When you get just close enough, that person will say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And then he will press a piece of bread into your hand. Take that piece of bread, dip it into the cup. When you do, the person holding the cup will say, and this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And then take and eat and consider whether or not this is the image of God that functions in your mind, heart, imagination, body. Because it needs to be. So then I hope you'll find a place to pray. Now, if you come to one of these side padded altars, over here it'll be Pastor Ken, and over here it'll be Pastor Lee Copeland. Nope, he's serving communion. It'll be somebody else who will meet you and pray a prayer for healing. Pastor Jim, it'll be. To pray a prayer for healing for your body, for your spirit, maybe for your mind, if you just don't have the right metaphor of God functioning, maybe you need a prayer for healing. Maybe it's relational, familial. We'll pray that prayer and anoint you with oil so that you can know, you can sense the tangible companionship of a God who sticks with you. If you come to one of these mourner's benches up here because you have something to confess, we're not gonna assume anything, but at some point, I'll come by and I'll pat you on the back, the neck, the shoulder, just to let you know you're not the only one praying that prayer. You're not alone. Or you can circle right back around. But if you do circle right back around, please pray this prayer. God, do I see you as Jesus? Or am I worshiping a God that's six inches or six feet or six miles away from the person of Christ? Are you my lens, God, with which I read scripture? Is Jesus the lens with which I consume the news and live my life? If not, God, help me in this moment to confess it and close the gap. tell you more 
of this story now. Y'all, it was on the night that he was betrayed that this God in Jesus took bread, blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body, broken for you, and every time you eat of it, remember me, every time. The same way he took the cup and he held it up before them and he said, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant, and every single time you drink of it, including today, remember me. You may want to make a special trip to be reminded of your baptism when you were baptized into this same people with a mission and a calling. Sometimes I need the reminder. This is available for you, too. And now, all across the sanctuary, if you would, participate in this story by standing to your feet, exiting your pew to the left, and then come forward, if you would, with your hands cupped to receive these gifts of God meant for the people of God to perpetuate the story of God.